We all go through suffering. Having the right career, going to the right uni, being a Christian, like having the right partner, none of these things are going to prevent us from experiencing suffering in our lives. Of course that's true. Like that, uh, and being a Christian doesn't allow us to escape suffering. And at least Jesus, though, is honest here and, and tells us that, yeah, you're going to suffer. Especially as a Christian, you're going to suffer. Now, of course, no one would say, I went to uni so I wouldn't suffer. No one would say, I chose this career so I wouldn't suffer. Or I became a Christian so I wouldn't suffer. Or, or any of those things. No, we wouldn't say that. But suffering always catches us by surprise. We always seem to be surprised by it. Or, or wondering why it's happening now. We, we don't, it's not always something we can easily understand. We don't expect it. Few of us expect suffering to come into our lives. When suffering comes, we're surprised. And I think one of the reasons why we're surprised is because we kind of construct our lives with the expectation that suffering is not going to come. In fact, we, we put all these things right in our lives so that we won't suffer in the future. And when we do, we can get thrown off course a bit. All of us can. We don't, and we don't always deal with it well, do we? It's a difficult thing to deal with. I think it's difficult, especially for us in the West, we have kind of massive issues with suffering. We don't really know how to, how to process it, where to place it in our in the experience of life. I think there's so many reasons for this. There's consumerism and capitalism over biblical living. There's systemic privilege and wealth. There's personal entitlement. There's individualism. There's so many reasons. We're not going to get into the reasons of why that is today, but we're going to talk about how to deal with suffering when it comes, because it will. Suffering will always come. And for now, let's just all assume that probably all of us can do better with suffering. So we can all, wherever we are in, in your faith, or maybe just in investigating faith, we can all do a little bit better in how we deal with suffering. For, for most of us, we don't understand it. We fail to deal with it. We fail to process it. We think it's meaningless, and so we don't know why it happens. Pain without process, pain without meaning, that, that leads to darkness. Without a way to go through it, suffering leads us to darkness. Now, we're all guaranteed to suffer in this world, so how are we going to get through it? Well, only through seeing our stories of suffering, the stories that we have of suffering, only through seeing those in the context of God's story will we be able to face our suffering, process our pain, and find meaning in it all. Only through seeing our stories of suffering in the context of God's story will we be able to face our suffering, process our pain, and see the meaning in it all. And that's what Psalm 13 teaches us. This is where we're getting it from. We're getting it from the Bible here in Psalm 13. It teaches us how to suffer well. There's a biblical term here that we'll be using called lament. It's kind of like complaining to God or, or moaning to God, or, but not in like a, um, a self-entitled way. It's bringing our needs and requests to God, asking him to fix something that's broken. And what we get in Psalm 13 is not just someone who is lamenting, who is bringing his pain to God, but it gives us like a template of how to lament. A very kind of quick and easy template, although it's not a quick and easy process, a quick and easy to understand template of how to lament, how to, how to suffer well. So generally, it looks a little bit like this. Now, all of us go through suffering. We all experience suffering. That's just a reality of being a human being. And if you're not experiencing it right now, well, just wait, because it comes. Suffering comes to all of us. It can be small, it can be large, but whatever it is, it's here. 
And here it's about recognizing and being honest with our suffering. This is stage one, recognizing and being honest with our suffering. Now stage three, over here, we all like to at least feel like our pain has some kind of meaning, right? Some kind of reason for why we're going through this thing. Oftentimes it's the meaninglessness of our of suffering that's so difficult. And so we want to have meaning. And we can find meaning. It is here in stage three. The pain we have isn't guaranteed to end or resolve in the way we want. But in whatever pain we experience, there is something to it. It's more than a mere lesson to learn. It's the way of being with Jesus. It's walking with Jesus, walking with him through difficult things. And that way we can find meaning. Now, you might have noticed we've uh, left out this middle section here, the stage two. This is where the hard work really happens. This is where the work really happens. This is a process to walk through, a path, a wandering even, because there's ups and there's downs, and we're not really sure, like, am I going forward? Am I going backwards? And sometimes we don't know if we're up or if we're down. It's, it's uh, disorientating. Now, the goal is for us to get over here, right? This is where we want to get. We want to get to meaning. We want to get through that. But what we often do because that middle area is difficult, what we often do is we try and shortcut our way around or try and go through here. But really, there is no way around because it's still going to be there. Because so we try and find other things maybe to numb the pain and close our hearts off. We try and drink and push it down. We try and busy ourselves with other things and try and forget about it. We do other things to compensate or overcompensate for it. Try as we might. The suffering will still be there. That meaningless lump of pain in our stomach swirling in our heads at night. But if we go through the process of lament, if we go through this process, we do find meaning. And more than that, we find joy, we find love, we find goodness. We find the love of God in a way that we didn't know before. Now, as much as we'd like that to be a straight path, it's not always a straight path to get there. It's not always straightforward. It's just as curvy as all this stuff is going on in here. It's a wilderness wandering. Sometimes it feels like we're going in circles. It's rarely quick, but it's how God has told us to go through the difficulties of life. Now, this is difficult. No one's saying it's not. It is difficult, but it's not as difficult as having to live with this on your own, trying to figure it out on your own way, finding your own path. But if we go through the process of lament, we do find meaning more than that. We find joy, love, and goodness. Now, this isn't always an easy path. It's not always straightforward. It's rarely quick, but it's how God has told us to go through the difficulties of life. He's given us a way to get through it. It's difficult, but it's not as difficult as trying to do it on your own and trying to find your own path through it. That's even more difficult. Now, we get this process kind of boiled down in these six short but very dense verses in Psalm 16. David, the author, is confronting some kind of suffering in his life, and, and we're not told what it is. It's ambiguous. And we don't know exactly what's happened. Is it, is it Ill, Ill health and death? Uh, is it death personified or as a metaphor for something else that feels like death? I mean, he's intentionally ambiguous so that we can find our lives in it. It's very easy to find our suffering in the story that David is writing here. And whatever is happening, this is kind of like how it feels, regardless of the thing we're going through. And so Psalm 13 walks us through three steps. The first one is facing our suffering, that's stage one. The second one is processing our pain, at stage two. And the third is finding meaning in it all at stage three. So three stages we have here. And we'll start with that first one, 
facing our suffering. This is verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 13. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? See here, God seems to be absent. He seems to be not even looking at what's going on or, or, or even caring. The, David feels forgotten. It feels like God isn't even looking at him. He's anxious in his head. He has these thoughts that are kind of swirling around and has sorrow in his heart. There's anxiety in his head and his heart. And his unnamed enemy here is winning, is triumphing over him. Now, if you can't be honest with God, this is very honest, right? If you can't be honest with God, you're missing out on your relationship with him. If you can't say these kind of things like, God, I don't even think you're looking at me. I don't even think you care. If you, if you can't say those things, that's not a real relationship. If, when you feel forgotten by him, you either can't tell him that or don't tell him that, you're missing out on a deeper relationship with him. I mean, do you think God can't handle it? Of course. I mean, we have all these reasons. Oh, like, you know, he's busy with other stuff or it's such a small thing. Why would I bring it to God? Those are all excuses for us to not bring our lives to God, for us to live kind of half-hearted lives, to live wholehearted lives and to bring our whole selves to God. And that includes being honest with our pain, with our suffering. And this is exactly what God invites us to. This is in the Bible for a reason. God is telling us, this is how I want you to talk to me. I want you to be honest with me. The psalm is teaching us how important that is. There's only six verses here, and so every verse is going to be really important. Every word is going to be very important, just like poetry. Word choice matters because there's not very many words in there. And so if you know, one-third of the psalm is about this kind of honest, God, where are you kind of stuff, obviously that's a very important thing. In our pain and in the face of our enemies, God seems to be absent. Surely all of us have experienced that. Maybe we're experiencing that right now. When we don't see him working, if we don't see it, we assume he's not. It seems like he's not, and then we, like, we assume it's not, he's not. Now, does this lead us to rest? No. It's a straight trajectory towards misery, towards anxiety, wrestling with my thoughts, having sorrow in my heart. There's a constant nagging emptiness, a constant feeling of not rightness going on here in this psalm. This is something that's gone on for a long time. Four times here in these verses, David's saying, How long? How long? How long? How long is this going to go on, Lord? Now, this is suffering that doesn't seem to go away. This is something that is deeply, um, has a deep impression on David. It affects, it's affecting him physically, as well as emotionally and spiritually. It's a hurdle he just can't seem to get over, a wall that he's hemmed in by. We are helpless by ourselves. But even worse than that, here, it seems like God doesn't seem to care. Now, again, the honesty here in these two verses is probably one that most of us rarely, like, we probably don't really live with this kind of honesty before God, let alone before other people. This is raw. This is being able to say words like this, being able to say words like this to God is a difference between knowing God as a concept or a, a set of beliefs and knowing God as a person. If God is a person, we can say these things to him. If God is a concept or a set of beliefs or some kind of theological kind of construct or whatever, then we're not going to really say these things because this is how you talk to a person. Religion does not, ask, does not let you ask questions like this. Empty religion says do not ask questions like this. You get kicked out for asking questions like this. Rigid philosophies don't have room for questions like this. Plus, who's going to answer anyway? But a real relationship with God himself 
means we can ask these questions, the ones that are already in our hearts to begin with. It's worth thinking through like why we don't ask these questions, though. Like, why don't we? Do we believe God is busy with some other important stuff? Do we think that we're not good enough, that we're not worthy, that like we haven't put the time in in our relationship with him, so therefore we can't ask him something? Basically, we're saying, if I did more, then God would be happy with me and would listen to me. That's not Christianity. That's empty religion. That is not Christianity. Some kind of man-made thing. Because God is always inviting us to speak with him. He's always asking us to bring what's really in our hearts before him, whatever it is, the good, the bad, and everything in between. What I've often found in my life and in other people's lives is this. Our weakness that we have is designed by God. It's supposed to bring us closer to God. But often we abuse that reality and use it as a way to keep God at arm's length, to keep God's people at arm's length. When really the weaknesses that we have, the despair we feel, the brokenness we feel, is meant to bring us closer to each other and to God. But we're not honest with it. And so it keeps us apart. If we're not honest with that weakness, we will be lonely, we will be apart, and we won't be connecting to God in the way that he's inviting us to. We'll dishonor that weakness that we have. We'll dishonor the suffering that we're feeling, the feelings that we're feeling. We'll dishonor all of that when we refuse to be honest with it before God. If we don't honestly bring our suffering to God, we miss out on knowing him. Dan Allender and Trumper Longman, one's a counselor, one's an author, a theologian, um, wrote a book called Cry of the Soul. That is very helpful. Um, I have it on my Kindle. For some publishers, there's like a limit of how many highlights you can export because they don't want you basically exporting the whole book into like another format and you know sharing the book somewhere else. So I have highlights and notes, all sorts of things of this book in my Kindle that I can't export them all because I have too many. Uh, it's a nerd problem, I know. Um, it's a fantastic book, though. If that, and in fact, we're going to learn more from stuff from this book and books like it later on in the new year. Um, but here's a great quote from, from them. Dan Allender and Trevor Longman says this, God does not tolerate manipulation of truth to escape from struggle. He longs for faith that struggles and rests in his goodness. That's what the psalm is about. God does not tolerate manipulation of truth, of how we really are, the suffering that really is, to escape from struggle. Like we try and explain it away, right? Oh, it's not that bad, or you know, we'll keep on carrying on. God longs for faith that struggles and rests in his goodness. And that means in the reality that we're facing. Sometimes we think we're being polite with God when we're not being honest with him. But that's not the case. What we're really doing is manipulating the truth of the situation, trying to prove ourselves better, or the situation is not really what it is, how we feel, in an attempt to not deal with the pain. God is looking for people who struggle. That's who God's looking for. People who wrestle through things and move forward, even though it's difficult. We are all so bad at this. We're all so bad at this. We can't do this by ourselves. But we just can't. We, you, me, all of us, we need others to walk through this with us. Through the ups and the downs. To help you to be honest. To call you out when you're not being honest. So the first stage is facing our suffering. We must be honest. Let's go to that second stage processing our pain. Processing our pain. This is where the real work, the real hard work kind of gets in. Um, let's look at stage two here in verses three and four. Uh, verses three and four. Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give a light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. 
Look on me and answer me, Lord my God. Let's talk first about the kind of, if we, let's not miss the big, simple, basic thing. David is going to the Lord in his pain. That's where he's going to here. He's going to the Lord in his pain. He's speaking to him. Again, this is a relationship. How many of us talk to God in this kind of way? Like, and sometimes we can make prayer like a, uh, a formalized thing. We think, oh, I can't really pray. It's just talking to somebody. If you can talk to a person, you can talk to God because God is a person. He's the person. Well, here, David wants to be seen by God and he wants life from the Lord. David knows that life from God and he, that life comes from God and he's seeking it even in the pain that he's feeling. Even when God feels absent, he's still seeking God because he knows that God has the life that he needs, the light for his eyes. So if God doesn't come through, death will overcome. This is what's going to happen. So God, if you don't come through, I will be overcome completely. He needs God to come through. He's desperate for it. He's leaning on it. This is what trust is. Relying on something with your entire weight. David is putting his entire weight on his relationship with God, on God to come through. Not just a little bit, not just kind of like leaning on it when it's easy or maybe when he needs something. He's putting, he's all in. David is all in because he knows God is all in, even if he doesn't see it first. And what if God doesn't come through? What happens then? Well, first is death. That's bad. Also, enemies gloating over their victory over him. Now, why is that such a bad thing? There's actually a very specific reason. We don't have time to get into all the other verses that kind of reference this reality, but here's the main thing. God is so connected to his people that their enemies are God's enemies. That's how connected God is to his people. We'll talk about enemies in a moment, so just hang on for that for a second here. If our enemies overcome us, if our enemies overcome us and gloat over us, it goes back on God. It shows the world that God is not the loving protector that he says he is, that God is not the loving father that he says he is. He's not the rescuer. He's not the deliverer. If our enemies have victory over us, it's bad on God's name. It's bad for us, yes. Also, it's bad for God's name. And this is how connected God is with his people. God cares so much about his people that he's chosen to do this. He's chosen to connect himself to us. Now let's talk about enemies for a second, because before we abuse this truth and, you know, see all oh, these people are my enemies and try and get at them through kind of some kind of weird spiritual language, we need to rightly define who our enemies are for this to make sense. Because so many times religion has used the wrong definition of enemy to basically keep marginalized people marginalized. Our enemies here, not a different political party. Our enemies here, it, uh, it's not a government. It's not someone who doesn't, who we just don't like or who doesn't look like us or whatever the thing is. The enemies of the Christian are these three things. The world, the flesh, the devil. The world, the flesh, the devil. The world is like 1 John 2.15. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. So it's, they're completely opposed. The world. Uh, second is our flesh, a.k.a. like our sinful desires. 1 Peter 2.11 says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, and exiles to abstain from sinful desires, not just desires, sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. That's, that's the world, that's the flesh, our sinful desires. The third is the devil, a.k.a. the dark spiritual world out there, the devil and all his friends, because the devil can't be in all places at all times. There's all sorts of um, spiritual enemies that we have. 1 Peter 5.8 says this, Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So the world, the flesh, and the, and the devil. These are our enemies. And these are the ones that David does not want gloating over him. Because if these enemies gloat over us, as God's people, 
and they win, what does that tell us about God? Is he really, is he really giving his people what they need? Is he really rescuing his people? Is he really loving them as a good father should? So David is honestly facing his suffering, as in stage one, and he's in stage two here now, and he brings it to God. He asks God to look at it. He's asking for an answer. He asks for the light to keep going. Now, this is the ups and the downs of lament. This is the wilderness wanderings, the wilderness wanderings of our hearts. David isn't saying, God, if you'd like to, if it's in your will, maybe could you please do this thing for me? Maybe if you'd like to and you're thinking about me just a little bit and if I'm really good. No, that's not what he's saying. He's boldly bringing his request before God, before his father, who he knows loves him. And he knows he can speak like this in front of. He's not groveling. He's talking to the Father. He's asking him to come through. He's being very honest and open with his Father. He's saying, God, you say you're good to your children. What I'm experiencing is not good. Please work. Change the situation. Otherwise, I'm going to die and your name is going to be you know, dishonored. Please break through and bring your wholeness and goodness in here where I'm not seeing it in the way that you say you're about. He's living in this wilderness space difficult place to be. I think with God, we can live with what's called learned helplessness. I don't know if you're familiar with this term, learned helplessness. If you're not familiar with it, it comes from these kind of series of experiments. Um, in the 1960s, which is a bit of a background, there was an experiment where a scientist would ring a bell and then give a light electrical shock to a dog. I know, it's sad. Let's not think about the dog right now. We'll think about the dog in a little bit, one second on that. After a number of times, okay, the dog, there's the ring a bell shock, the light shock to the dog. Um, after a number of times, the dog reacted to the shock um, even before it happened. As soon as the bell was rung, the dog acted like he was getting shocked and, and kind of reacted that way. That was the first phase of the experiment. It gets, it gets going. For the second phase of this experiment, the, uh, the scientists put the dog into a large crate and it was divided down the middle with a low fence that the, the, dog, the dog could easily see and easily move over to this other side if he wanted to. Now the floor on one side of the fence was electrified, the floor on the other was not. So one side electrified, the other is not. The scientists put the dog, who learned that the bell and the shock come, the scientists put the dog in the electrified side, side and gave a light shock. What would you expect to happen? Like kind of I'd expect the dog to be like, oh, let me out of here. Let me go to the place that's not getting shocked because that's a good place to be. I don't want to get electrocuted. The dog did not jump on the other side and get out of there, though. Instead, all the dogs just kind of laid down. They didn't even bother. They could have went over that fence. They saw it. They could have just went, moved somewhere else and tried. What they did is they learned from the first part of the experiment that there was nothing they could do to avoid the shock. Nothing. So they just gave up in the second part. And this is what the scientists termed learned helplessness. It, the definition is trying to get out of a bad situation because the path, not, sorry, not trying to get out of, a, out of a bad situation because the past has taught you that you're helpless. Learned helplessness is not trying to get out of a bad situation because the past has taught you that you're helpless. Now, if the idea of dogs getting small shocks and giving up makes you sad, and it should, that's very sad. I don't want to hear really any more about that, actually. What is even more sad, what's more tragic, are human beings going through life this way. This is how most humans live life. Just got to sit down and lie down and take it, and hopefully that shock will end. I can go over there, yeah, but, you know, why? 
that's most of how people react to suffering. And that should really break our hearts as Christians. When something bad happens, you know you can't do anything there, so you just lay there and take it and hope it ends. Actually, even more sad are Christians who act this way. And we do, don't we? It's like, oh, I'm not going to bring it to God. Like, what's he going to do? Or I'm not going to talk to someone else. Or I don't want someone to pray about it. I'm not going to pray about it because, like, what good is he going to do? Never truly giving something to God, never truly sharing our weaknesses and struggles with anyone else, alone in a cage, curled up by ourselves. That is tragic. The past has taught you that you're helpless. You know, there's, that's, yeah, I agree. Basically, we are. But you've also learned there is nowhere to go in your helplessness, and that's where the problem is. Jesus is inviting you to unlearn those horrible lies. Those are, those are lies. You don't have to be alone in your suffering. You do have a place to go. Even better, you have a person who is inviting you to bring all of it to him. You have God himself inviting you to bring all of everything you're going through to him. God himself is calling you from your cage by yourself to live a life full of honesty, to live a life full of feeling, full of life. And this person has created a family, a group of people who, who will walk along with you in that, who not only need you, but who you need yourself. These people need you to be there for them just as badly as you need them to be there for you. So that's the second stage, processing our pain. That's what it looks like. It's a, sometimes a very long work, sometimes you know, for the rest of our lives kind of work. But we bring it to God, we ask him to work, we ask him to keep us going. Now, what does this kind of look like in real life? Like, this sounds great maybe in these poetic form and in, you know, in a sermon form. Like, here's maybe one way of what we would like it to look like. This is what we think, straight trajectory. Everything's going to go good. I just, you know, keep going, keep moving. But here's what it really looks like. It's all over the place. Is there forward progress? I don't know, but I'm still wrestling with it. I'm still going, still struggling. Have you ever seen a wrestling match? It's like someone's winning, someone's losing. It's like it's going back and forth. There's a struggle. And it doesn't, it's not always clear that we're actually like making forward progress in it. But progress is staying in it, staying with God, bringing yourself to Him, bringing yourself to His people. It's the consistent work of bringing our whole selves to God. Consistent is the key. Day after day, moment after moment. Weaknesses and suffering and all, asking him to work. And the Psalms are an excellent place to find ourselves. It's excellent for us to for you to start your day, finish your day, middle of your day, however however it works best for you, to bring your life to them, not just to read them and have them kind of gloss over you, but to bring your life to them and to spend time with them. Have them become your friends. Read them, pour over them. Let their words become your words. And God speaks to you through that. This is how he speaks to us. So, we've talked through two stages. Now, what's on the other side? We've talked about the first two stages. We don't get resolution all the time. We don't get a positive result. We, uh, we, we get walls sometimes. It feels like when we pray, it's just kind of going nowhere. Their prayers, when they get answered, they're not in the way we want. Or maybe they don't get answered. Uh, but even in all of that, we can get meaning. And this meaning leads to a life of deeper joy and praise that can only be found on the far side of lament. And on this far side of lament, this is where we find the meaning in it all. We're in the last two verses now, verses 5 and 6, so let's read those 
of Psalm 13. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. See, the meaning comes through going through the previous four verses. If you say these two verses without having done the hard work of the two previous stages, these words will be empty, religious, cliche, and shallow. And if your life is like that, you'll have an empty, religious, cliched, and shallow life with the Lord. Staying on the near side of lament leads to shallow Christianity. But the far side of lament, walking through this, and the way that God is calling us to walk through, gives us something more. It gives us a depth. It gives us meaning. I mean... It's kind of crazy what he's writing here, right? I, I trust. My heart rejoices. I will sing. This seems incredible. Is this even the same psalm? Is this even the same person? What's going on here? Let's take a look, uh, a closer look, actually, at these things. I trust in what? I trust in God's unfailing love. God, even though I'm here and I feel lonely and it seems like you've left me, nevertheless, I'm going to trust in your unfailing love. That unfailing love word here, this is God's covenantal love, his chesed love. It's a Hebrew word for like a covenantal love that will never be broken. A promise that God has made that he will never go back on. This is what he, David is trusting in. He will never take that away. Even if we feel like it's taken away, it's not. Second thing is my heart rejoices in what? In God's salvation. This is setting our situations in God's world, not trying to cram God's world into our situation, Right? God's world, God's is, is, is the first reality that we bring ourselves to. That word salvation means rescue, means deliverance. This looks to our ultimate rescue of life, our ultimate rescue from, from death, get, being given a life eternal. And if God is good enough for that, he is good enough to rescue us from the smaller situations of these all kind of little tiny deaths we experience in our lives. And in the future, what will David do? David will sing of God's praise. He's even optimistically looking forward to the future. Somehow this is going to work out in a way that I am going to sing God's praise. Why? Because he's good. And not just generically good, he's good to me. Because he is good to me. He has been good to me. And there's so much in here. We could have done the whole message on these two verses. So I'm going to restrain myself and slow down a little bit. As you walk through lament, we learn to take our trust, that precious commodity that we have, and not leave it with things that will let us down, not leave it with things that are just kind of not going to come through for us, but we get to place it in God's lap. And only His love is unfailing. Your career, that's not unfailing. Your partner, as much as they love you, it's not unfailing, they're human. Your, you know, your family, whatever the thing is, nothing else has the unfailing love that God has. Until we're stripped of these other loves, we generally don't kind of give up on them. We will lean on them. and We won't put our whole weight on God the way David is here. And we can't do this overnight. This is a process. And suffering will, will force us to put our trust somewhere. So where is your trust? Where are you placing it when you're walking through suffering? Maybe you're there now. Where is your trust now? Can you really say... And the way that David's talking here, my trust is really in you, Lord. As you walk through lament, as you lament, we learn to rejoice more in God's suffering. Sometimes we think lament is just like about, you know, being sad. The goal of lament is to come to joy, 
That's and when we get that meaning, that gives us a depth, a joy that's that goes beyond our circumstances. God's rescue becomes more real to us when this happens, more tangible. We have our hope um, ends up being less in things of this world, and this world is less of an end to us than God's plan for His world, for the new heavens and earth, and for that to be our end. That that changes the way we go through our lives. Rejoice is like the verb form of joy, like to joy, to to joy around. <laughs> The thing that brings us more joy is God's work in our lives. The more we see God's work in our lives, the more joy that we get to live with. And life with God is the best way to enjoy life. Christianity, the call isn't to like not do stuff. The call is to enjoy life to its fullest. That, that's what it's all about. That's what God wants for all of us. And the more our hearts are aligned with Him, the more joy we're going to have. And when God ceases to be generically good, and becomes good to you, that changes things. That causes us to sing his praise. Not just a literal song. Yes, that as well. Not just a literal song, though, but our lives become such that it's the metaphor of our lives become a song of praise, constantly being sung to the Father. And this is coming from a guy who hasn't seen any of that yet. He's saying, this is what my life is going to be like. And that kind of song coming from this experience, from walking through this, is not trite, it's not superficial, it's not shallow, it's deeply real. And this is what awaits us on the far side of lament. A deeply real joy. Now, all of this takes time. Just because this is a short psalm doesn't mean it's a short process. You know, it depends on the situation, depends on the person, depends on all the sorts of things that go on. The Psalms are poetry, and, and as such, they compress a lot of time and a lot of meaning and a lot of experience into something smaller and bite-sized like these six verses that we have here. But don't think that David magically just changed his mood all of a sudden between verse 4 and 5. It's taken a long time, probably, to develop this short statement. We don't know how long it took for David to get from verse 4 to verse 5. We don't know how long it's going to take for any of us to get to verse 4 and to verse 5 in our lives. It could be days, months, years even. It will be different for each of us in our situations. But the goal is for us to be in it. To, it's very easy to not be. For, to put our, ourselves in it the way David is will get us there eventually. So let's just go through these stages again that we have. Stages 1 through 3. So let's go through these stages again uh, a bit, as a bit of a recap. Stage one, the suffering that we all experience, right? We all experience suffering. Uh, facing our suffering means being honest with it. We don't really want to deal with it. And so even though we're here, we try and go here or here or even like back there somewhere back here. Like we're just trying to, to run away from it. We don't really want to deal with it. Um, but it's kind of like that children's book, The Bear Hunt. Where, you know, we can't go over it, we can't go under it, we have to go through it. And so stage two brings us to that wilderness wandering of lament. Things are up, things are down, some days are good, some days are not so good. I don't even know what I'm feeling this day. We can't do this apart from the Bible. We can't do it apart from prayer. We can't do this apart from other people. It's messy. It's all over the place. Like, are we up, are we down? I don't know. It's the wilderness wanderings of our hearts. Don't put the pressure on yourself of needing to have it together all the time, okay? Just don't do that. It's not, it's not Christianity. Stage three, on the far side of lament, is where we find meaning. That's where we want to end up. We want to, we want to at least know that this is for something, that there's a reason behind it. Now, the pain that we have may not be resolved, 
But there is a joy that transcends our circumstances, a newfound enjoyment of God's love. And this is walking with Jesus. And in this, we find meaning. We find his hope, we find his love, we find deliverance. Lest we think the Bible is all about us, here's a tip on how to read the Psalms. First thing to do, put the words on the lips of Jesus. What does this Psalm mean if Jesus was to say it? How can we say these words? Well, only because Jesus said them first. In the Garden of Gethsemane, asking the Father to find some other way than the cross, Jesus praying to God, even though he knows this now, he's still bringing his honest self to, to the Father. Then on the cross, when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You can see some of the, kind of the, the echoes going on here. Is this not what David is writing in these first two verses? This is, Jesus is walking through this. Jesus faced his suffering honestly. He didn't try and explain it away. He didn't try and use religious language to cover it up. He didn't say, oh, because I'm perfect, I don't have to worry about it. If anyone could have, he could have. And yet he didn't. He brought his suffering honestly to God. He brought it to the Father. This doesn't relieve Jesus of suffering. God didn't, you know, the Father didn't wave a magic wand and Jesus didn't have to go to the cross. Jesus still went to the cross. He still suffered. He still died. But it's how he went through it that's a model for us. So Jesus becomes a model for how to go through suffering. So uh, using this psalm, putting it on the words of Jesus, we get the model of how to go through suffering. And what Jesus did is he died and he rose again. And in doing so, he gives us his joy. We get his joy to be able to say these things that David's saying further down in this psalm. He, Jesus has proved his unfailing love for us. He's won us by that unfailing love that he has had. The love of the Father is poured into our hearts through what Jesus did. So he's not just the model. He is a model, of course. He's the ultimate model, but not merely a model. He's also the means of how we can go through it. It's not up to us to try and be Jesus. Thank God, because we can't. What he does instead is something even better. Knowing that we're weak, he puts his spirit in us, gives us the energy to be able to say these things, to be able to walk through these things together. It's not to try hard and be like Jesus. That's called religion. It's empty religion. It's anti-Christianity in all possible ways, even though it uses Christian language mostly. It's the trust that we have in Jesus to get us where we need to be. That's the difference. Trust that Jesus has the words of life. So we read them alone and with others. Trust that he's there with us and is now reigning over every situation, including those that are really difficult and include suffering. So we talk to him by ourselves and we talk to him with other people. Jesus will never ask you to do what he's done. He's done it. He said it's finished. We don't need to. He saved us from that. And as difficult and real as our sufferings are, it doesn't touch what Jesus has already gone through on your behalf. The Father hid his face from Jesus. Jesus was forgotten. The anguish and sorrow of facing the cross, not just the physical torture, but the spiritual and emotional torture going through it, and the apparent victory of death, gloating over Jesus, three days. But he never stopped trusting in the Father's unfailing love. He never stopped rejoicing in the Father's plan to rescue more. He never stopped singing his Father's praise because he knew his Father's good to him. And he, just as Jesus never stopped in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, and now his ascension, he will never stop giving you the grace that you need to be able to go through your suffering in the way that David is teaching us here. Because Jesus went through this, 
He not only gives us a model of how to walk through suffering, of how to lament, but he is how we get there. He is how we get there. He gave us his spirit, his Holy Spirit. So it's God working in us to do this very thing that we would like to do. And now his home is in you. It's where he lives. So now it's not about how strong your grasp is on him, your uh, power of the Bible, or whatever it is. It's how strong his grasp is on you. It's unfailing in every possible way. Suffering will come. We can't get over it. We can't go under it. We have to go through it. Jesus allows us to be able to go through it. See, the Lord has been good to you. He has. Even in our suffering, even when we don't feel it, He has been good to you. If we take the time to face our suffering and to process our pain on the far side of lament, we find meaning, we find love, we find deliverance, we find joy, we find songs of praise to God. Let me pray.